My name is Erin Kenny. I'm a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, holistic cannabis practitioner with a master's degree in nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Hello, Dr. Sethi. How are you doing? All right. I'm doing great, Erin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know we were just talking on air about how or sorry, off air about how you spend some time in Boston and and head over to the Midwest, and now you're on the West Coast in a in a warmer climate. I just went wherever life took me. Right when I uh, uh, started my training in here in the U.S., I went to Houston, Texas first for my master's in public health. Then uh, for medical training, I got a spot in uh, in Detroit, you know, the Midwest. You know, from there I went to uh, Boston for my gastroenterology training, and then finally I came to California for the last leg of my training. And uh, I fell in love with California and just made this my home. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, as a gastroenterologist, uh, very grateful to have you on here. As this podcast, we always tie in gut health as part of the conversation, and I figured who better to have on this episode than someone who loves gastroenterology and has been practicing for several years. I've been in practice for um, uh, almost 10 years. I practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. I uh, trained at Harvard and Stanford. I loved biology, you know, growing up. And uh, the fact that, you know, the digestive system, right, with this, all its organs, you know, the liver, pancreas, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, works in unison with trillions of uh, gut uh, bacteria as a, as a well-oiled machinery. On top of it, you know, my brother and myself, we used to love playing video games. And uh, uh, when I discovered endoscopies and colonoscopies, I was like, wow, you know, this is like playing video games, but just inside patients' bodies. I'm like, okay, I can do that, you know, <laughs> uh, on a daily basis at work, sure. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, so, you know, that's why I chose gastroenterology. And yeah, I, uh, I love to talk about it. I'm passionate about gut health. That's incredible. Well, maybe some inspiration for anyone listening who knows someone who's really good at video games that... Although you might think it's useless, yeah. there could be a future there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Well, I, I yeah. want to dive into the discussion of colonoscopy and endoscopy because I, I think there's, A, there's maybe some lack of education on kind of what these tests are, what they're for, what types of things they can diagnose. Um, and maybe we can talk about um, some of their limitations, especially when it comes to certain digestive issues like IBS and, you know, motility disorders. So maybe we can start with a colonoscopy and, and then move over to endoscopy after that. So colonoscopy can find out about uh, a lot of uh, pathologies uh, in the colon. Uh, for example, you know, colon polyps, uh, colon cancer, inflammatory bowel diseases like uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. It can also help in the diagnosis of, uh, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, which in many cases is a diagnosis of exclusion, right? Because the symptoms of IBS can overlap with a lot of other gut health conditions, uh, which makes the, the diagnosis of IBS uh, quite challenging in a few cases. Uh, with an endoscopy, you know, we can find out about, you know, uh, problems in the stomach or the small intestine, you know, things like celiac disease, gastric ulcers, infections like H. pylori, which is you know, one of the most common infections uh, that can cause stomach ulcers, uh, gastritis, that is inflammation of the stomach, you know, acid reflux, all of those can be found out with the help of upper endoscopy. 
Excellent. And are these tests standard for every single gastroenterologist? So if someone had digestive issues, they went to a gastroenterologist and you're getting a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, are these all going to be tested for? Or are these things that are specifically selected based on a patient's symptoms or does a patient have to advocate for them? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, You know, it just depends upon the symptomatology with which the patient presents with. If uh, Um, You know, they present with symptoms which look like are coming from the upper uh, digestive tract, you know, like food pipe or stomach or small intestine, things like heartburn or upper belly pain or bloating. Those usually indicate that the problem is likely in the upper GI tract. In those cases, you know, endoscopy is uh, often recommended. If a person is presenting with uh, things like change in bowel habits, you know, chronic constipation or diarrhea, or rectal bleeding, that means most likely uh, the diseases are in the colon, large intestine. Uh, in those cases, colonoscopy is uh, usually uh, the standard of care. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's helpful to understand that, you know, knowing that doing both tests might be the best comprehensive way to make sure that you're having a full assessment and looking at all areas of the digestive tract. It just depends upon the symptomatology with the, which uh, a person presents. Okay. Because at the end of the day, both these tests are invasive procedures, even though the risk of complications from the endoscopy and colonoscopy is rare. Chance of infection, perforation, bleeding, if someone does not really need it, we should not do it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's, that's helpful to know. And are there any specific red flags that you can share with the listeners about you know, maybe they're wondering, you know, I'm young, I'm not at the age where I should be getting a colonoscopy, but are there certain red flags that you would maybe share with the audience that would encourage them to maybe, you know, speak with their doctors about these types of tests? A few of the red flags would be any problem swallowing. That would mean that there's probably some obstruction or a mass in the food pipe causing that problem. Second would be persistent abdominal pain, change in bowel habits, Fourth would be any kind of bleeding from the mouth or the rectum. Sometimes bleeding can present as just black stools. You know, black stools would mean, the, you know, there could be something bleeding in the upper uh, GI tract. Then unexplained weight loss. You know, there could be stomach or colon uh, polyps or cancer that can cause net weight loss. If someone has, you know, especially elderly people, if they have any anemia, you know, low hemoglobin, that's also a telltale sign that there could be something uh, bleeding inside the stomach or the colon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how you connected lab work to, you know, some digestive complications there, because oftentimes we think, you know, it's just specifically symptoms that we're looking at. But there are certain things that we might see in labs, even with things like SIBO, right? We can see nutrient deficiencies mm-hmm. like B12 and yep. low vitamin D that can indicate some malabsorption mm-hmm. going on. So I think that that's really helpful for the listener to know. Now, I know I didn't, we didn't talk off air about this, but I know you just did a post on it on um, enemas or colonics, I think it was. I guess just big picture in terms of colonics, colonics have become really popular from, I think, social media or just if someone's doing maybe something like a parasite cleanse, people are under the impression that you have to be doing some sort of cleansing of the colon during this process. Can you speak to that and, you know, just briefly and then any of the complications that or concerns that you might have as a gastroenterologist for regular use of these types of procedures? The colonic enemas do carry a risk, but they can cause perforation. It's done under high pressure. So I generally do not recommend doing colonic enemas. 
Okay. Yeah, I can actually share a personal experience. So kind of as a fun little girls weekend for my birthday, my mom had actually booked us a spa treatment. And the colonic was an option on there. And she knows that I'm pretty much open to try anything. And we actually did try the colonic experience. And it was horrible, especially from somebody who grew up with (laughs) horrible digestive issues. It was like, PTSD, because most of my childhood, I was in serious pain and there was cramping and my whole digestive system was always really struggling. So I'm sitting on this table and there's basically water going into your intestines and then my stomach would cramp and then I would get really hot and sweaty. And then, you know, the process would go on for about an hour. And without getting too graphic, I mean, A few days after this happened, my appetite was super low. My bowels felt incredibly inflamed and there was actually bleeding in my stool. So I can share my personal experience that my body, my gut did not enjoy this process. And I will also say I'm someone who has regular bowel movements. I have what I would consider generally good gut health because I take care of that, but it just really opened my eyes to how harsh that was on my system. And, you know, something that I think that people should be aware of that these things that you can do at home that might seem trendy or, you know, cleansing are not always going to be beneficial and claim what they should be doing, but they can also be very harmful. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story, Erin. I completely agree. You know, there are multiple ways to fix your gut health. However, colonic enemas probably not one of those. (laughs) There we go. That's a great, great way to segue into the next topic. So what are some of the most common gastrointestinal disorders that you encounter in your practice? And maybe what would you say are some of the root causes of those gastrointestinal disorders? Being a gastroenterologist, I see a lot of uh, gut pathology in my clinics on a day-to-day basis. Things like celiac disease, gastric ulcers, uh, acid reflux, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, colon polyp, colon cancer. However, the most common condition that I see on a daily basis has to be irritable bowel syndrome, you know, IBS. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the issue with the diagnosis of IBS is that because the overlap of IBS symptoms with a lot of other gut conditions, that makes the, the diagnosis a challenge a lot of times. Uh, I'll give you a specific example. A couple of weeks back, I saw a patient uh, came to me with a diagnosis of IBS. She has bloating, you know, change in bowel habits, you know, for most of her life. She has been to a few gastroenterologists. Uh, She has done endoscopy, colonoscopy, multiple imaging studies, blood tests, stool tests, you name it, she has done it. Anyway, she comes to me, brings the whole stack, right? I go through the whole stack, you know, I review everything, of course. And uh, I realize that there is a simple test that for some reason has been overlooked. And I ordered that test. It's called uh, tissue transglutaminase antibody. It comes back positive. Lo and behold, the patient actually does not have IBS. She has celiac disease. So the point I'm trying to make is a lot of people get misdiagnosed as IBS, even though they have another gut pathology going on. It could be celiac disease, it could be lactose intolerance, SIBO, you know, amongst, you know, other plethora of gut conditions uh, that are possible. Something to keep in mind uh, as you uh, discuss your symptoms with your gastroenterologist. Excellent. That was very thorough and very helpful considering I know that there are probably a lot of listeners who have been told that they have IBS. Yep. 
So let's talk a little bit about um, stomach ulcers, because this is something that has really come up a lot in my practice over the past few years. Um, stomach ulcers, re acid reflux, those types of symptoms, you know, can be incredibly, you know, damaging to mental health and quality of life. Not that, you know, other digestive issues are not, but these are ones that we really haven't talked a lot about on my podcast. So I'd love to kind of talk about testing for them and then some natural remedies that could maybe help clients who are looking to support their bodies. There are some telltale signs that someone could be suffering from gastric ulcers. And those would be a pain in the upper center part of the belly or pain in the left uh, upper area uh, where stomach is. If that pain is persistent in that area, you could be having a stomach ulcer. The other symptoms would be you know, nausea, vomiting. If there's any bleeding from the mouth or black stools, that could be indicative of uh, uh, bleeding stomach ulcer. And now in terms of uh, uh, the diagnosis of stomach ulcers, there are a few tests that can be done. I usually start the patient's uh, diagnostic workup by doing a test for H. pylori, you know, helicobacter pylori, uh, because that is one of the most common reasons for stomach ulcers. So either a urease breath test or an H. pylori stool antigen test that will tell us if the patient is suffering from H. pylori infection uh, causing stomach ulcer. So if that is positive, usually the patient need a standard triple therapy, you know, two antibiotics and one proton pump inhibitor to fix the infection. The, the second important thing that I like to discuss with the patients is if they are on any non-steroidal medications like ibuprofen, Motrin, Advil, you know, because these medications can also predispose you to have stomach ulcers. If that workup has been done, the patient is still struggling, then the next course of action becomes an endoscopy, you know, which is the gold standard test to diagnose gastric ulcers. And if you find ulcers, the, the treatment usually is to um, try the patients on either proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers. So medication like omeprazole, pantoprazole, or medication like famotidine. On top of it, I usually encourage my patients to consume some natural foods as well to speed up the healing process. And those foods are turmeric, you know, with uh, anti-inflammatory properties. Cabbage, you know, cabbage has sulforaphane, which is known to promote gut healing. Uh, yogurt which has tons of probiotics. You know, if someone is lactose intolerant, they can have lactose-free yogurt. But these are my go-to foods for my patients who are suffering from gastric ulcers. That's awesome. Well, one thing that really drew me to your page as a gastroenterologist was that you, of course, are medically trained, but you are helping clients make healthier lifestyle and dietary changes, which is so important because during my gut healing process, when I was younger, I went to a gastroenterologist and most of the nutrition advice that I got, which was all of, you know, a few sentences were that I should eat more fiber and that I should take fiber gummies for supporting digestive health. So it's really helpful to know that there are gastroenterologists out there who are giving some food recommendations as well. Well, the world is changing. Yeah, so I, I hope I hope it we continues. Need to it. <laughs> I hope it continues that way. And one yes, thing that you, you one thing thank that you the kind words. of yes. course, and one thing that you mentioned that I think is important to highlight. Uh, a lot of people are afraid of the the word proton pump inhibitors, right? Because people are understanding the long term consequences of being on them. Um, but I think it's important for listeners to understand that there's a time and place for everything, and the proton pump inhibitors that Dr. Sethi is referring to are incredibly important for that healing process that you don't want there to be a very acidic, you know, environment in the gut if you're trying to get rid of this type of bacteria. Is that correct? 
Absolutely correct. Everything in medicine is risk and benefit analysis, right? If the benefit of taking a medicine outweighs the risk of the medicine, then we go with it. The risks are more, then we stay away from it. In the case of gastric ulcers, the standard treatment is two months of proton pump inhibitors. And over short term, these medications are very safe. The problem happens if one takes proton pump inhibitors for long periods of time, without having a clear-cut indication to be taking those. In my practice, you know, I've seen people who come to me while being on the proton pump inhibitors, taking those as candies and not clearly knowing why they're taking those. They don't have conditions like Barrett's esophagus or eosinophilic esophagitis or some other conditions which require you to have, be on this medication long-term. You know, in that case, the benefits of staying long-term on this medication outweigh the risks the risk of affecting the kidneys or thinning the bones, those risks are less as compared to the benefits of taking this medication. It's always the risk-benefit analysis when we're dealing with these medications. Yeah, and it's hard because when you see them at a pharmacy now, right, they're so accessible that we assume that there's such little risk associated if you can just pick them up at CVS and, you know, have that type of access to them. But that's not true. And um, I'm glad you brought up the eosinophil esophagitis because I had a client recently who was diagnosed with EOE and uh, was put on long-term proton pump inhibitors and was told, listen, you're going to have to be on these medications long-term. And, you know, after having a discussion with this client, she really wanted to be able to live a life without them, you know, just based on the risks associated. So we did have to do a pretty intensive food elimination diet um, but she was very, you know, very consistent working with me. We made sure to keep her diet as broad as possible. And we were able to get her levels down to the point where she does no, not have to take a proton pump inhibitor anymore after doing her second uh, endoscopy. So, you know, there are certain things, mm -hmm. even conditions like that, that I've seen success, although... You know, she's a patient who doesn't have kids. She's an adult. It was very, you know, you know, realistic for her to do that food elimination diet. But we were able to get her to a place where uh, the inflammation was so low and now we're doing the reintroduction. But that's a, a cool success story that has been uh, over a year of hard work on, on both of our ends. But very excited to share yes. that um, with you. I'm glad that you, you brought that up. Uh, yes. um, so let's kind of talk about liver health. And in, in the beginning of our conversation here, you mentioned the digestive system, and then you went on to say the liver, the gallbladder, like all these different organs. And I think that that is such an important conversation about how the gut is connected to all these surrounding organs in the body. Uh, the liver being one that is incredibly important. And when most people think of liver health, they think of detoxification and, and that's really the main thing. But can you speak a little bit more to how the gut and the liver are connected? And then maybe we can go into some ways that you can support the liver. The liver, because of its uh, anatomical and physiological relationship with the gut, plays an extremely important role in optimizing gut health. Liver produces bile, which helps in the digestion of food. It uh, detoxifies harmful substances and helps in the nutrient absorption in the body as well. I see a lot of patients in the practice suffering from fatty liver disease because of you know, being overweight or, or obese. A lot of other patients come to me with fatty liver because of their chronic alcohol intake. At this time, we do not have good medications for fatty liver, even though a lot of companies are working on it. Um, my hope is that in a couple of years, we'll have some good medications. But for now, uh, the, the treatment is diet and exercise. 
That means eating plenty of fruits, veggies, whole grains, avoiding sodas, avoiding ultra-processed foods, you know, focusing on gut health, you know, by eating fermented foods, avoiding junk food, basically. And then try to um, inculcate the habit of uh, 20 to 30 minutes of physical activity, anything that you like. Mm -hmm. And are there any specific symptoms that, you know, any lay individual might have if they have a fatty liver without any sort of testing? Some people can have uh, a vague, dull discomfort on the right upper uh, area of the belly. That's where the liver is. Some people can have a decreased appetite or unexplained weight loss. In advanced stages, the color of the eyes, the white of the eyes can become yellow. In the blood work, there can be the abnormal liver tests. In the imaging studies, there can be increased echogenicity of the liver in the ultrasound. Those are some of the few uh, signs and symptoms. Mm -hmm. That's great. And it's, and it's pretty cool to know how resilient the liver is and how how receptive it can be to dietary and lifestyle changes. So if you have a fatty liver, you're not stuck with a fatty liver for the rest of your life. It's something that, you know, you can support your body with. And I think that when most people think of fatty liver, they think that you have to be, you know, at an unhealthy weight or eating, you know, lots of unhealthy foods all the time. But is it true that just general healthy individuals who consume, you know, alcohol in a decent amount, even though they may appear to be a healthy body weight, could still have fatty liver disease? Yeah, absolutely. You know, alcohol is a toxin for uh, the liver. So if you are consuming alcohol, even in moderate amounts uh, uh, on a regular basis, that can cause fatty liver and uh, which eventually, if not uh, stopped from progressing by making the adequate lifestyle changes can cause scarring of the liver, which is known as cirrhosis. So when the fatty liver is in, in its early stages, it is reversible because the hepatocytes, the cells in the liver, have an amazing regenerative capacity. But once the stage goes to the fibrosis and the scarring, then it becomes much more difficult uh, for us to reverse that. Even though there is still some reversibility uh, possible, but it becomes harder and harder as we go along the disease progression. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think a lot of people aren't aware of about liver enzymes too is that if you're taking a cabinet full of natural supplements or dietary supplements, that this can actually elevate your liver enzymes and put a lot of stress on your liver. So I always like to tell patients about that because when it comes to gut health or any sort of nutrition goals, sometimes we get a little trigger happy on you know trying to add in supplements. And before we know it, we're taking a whole box of supplements and we forget that all of these have to be processed by the body and the liver can sometimes become a little bit too stressed when we take those supplements. There are a lot of uh, herbal supplements which are known to cause uh, hepatotoxicity, which means, you know, toxicity in the liver. And in some cases, actually, the liver can can fail, which is called acute liver failure from uh, toxic caused by herbal supplements. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, people need to be aware that even these natural herbal supplements can come with side effects. So another question that I had, are there any success stories or just memorable patient cases that you might highlight that have impacted people's lives from your gastroenterological experience? Absolutely. There was a patient, a young female, she was in her uh, late 20s. I saw her uh, a couple months back, she came to me with uh, just intermittent rectal bleeding. I did an anoscopy, which means uh, just checking out the anus and the rectal area, and I found that she has internal hemorrhoids. 
I did uh, hemorrhoid rubber bands on her. It took, you know, three rounds to remove the internal hemorrhoids. Uh, for a month or two, she did well. But then she came back to me again with rectal bleeding. And uh, it had me scratch my uh, head and uh, proceed with the colonoscopy for this patient. And lo and behold, I found uh, an early sigmoid colon cancer. So luckily for this patient, uh, it was early stage. She had partial resection of the colon and she got a complete cure. She's going to need surveillance colonoscopies you know, throughout her life uh, because she's at risk for you know, developing colon polyps in the future. But that just tells you that we need to have a high level of suspicion whenever any person presents with any uh, GI-related uh, concerns. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I'm so, so grateful to hear that that patient found you and that you were able to help her find that full remission. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that made my day. Yes. I'm sure. Yes. Very rewarding when you have patient success stories like that. You mentioned the the hemorrhoid conversation is is a very common thing that a lot of people may not be aware of. Are there certain things that people can do to help prevent hemorrhoids or maybe even to help with their discomfort while they have them? I mean, can they heal naturally on their own? Erin, I'll tell you this. In the last couple of years, I've seen increase in the, in the incidence of rectal issues, the hemorrhoids, anal fissures, rectal prolapse. And the reason being, people are spending way too much time on the social media or on the toilet seat because they're just scrolling through their email, the social media, right, TikToks and Instagrams while, you know, they are on the toilet seat. And what that does is that increases the pressure on the rectum. And even though they're not aware about it, they are predisposing themselves to increase the risk for hemorrhoids, fissures, rectal prolapse. Wow. So I would recommend limiting the use of a phone while you're doing number two. Yeah, that's a that's great advice. And I know for some people, you know, especially if they have like a shy bladder, shy bowels, like, you know, getting their phone out can sometimes help distract them a little bit. But I think what you're kind of referring to is people that just end up sitting there and spending more time. Absolutely. Yeah, no more than five to 10 minutes on the toilet seat, ideally. Yeah. And that usually if you have to spend that much more time, there's usually a sign that there's something that needs to be changed, maybe dietary wise, or you need to be drinking more water because if it takes that long to have a bowel movement, I would imagine that there's usually something else going on. Exactly. You know, that could uh, mean that you may want to increase your fiber intake or your water intake. Uh, if you're still struggling with straining, you know, and spending so much time on the toilet seat, that means you need to be checked out and make sure there's no colon polyps or any cancer growths in the colon. Yeah. Yeah. And so my mom had, she had polyps when she was 18 years old. She had digestive issues mm -hmm. and ended up going to a gastroenterologist who was able to remove them. And then, you know, of course she got her regular checkups after that. And so I actually got to do a colonoscopy at a much younger age because of that risk factor. So I think if you can access, um, you know, medical history from your family, understanding your risk for things like colon cancer, it's really important because you might think you're young and healthy and, you know, there's not necessarily a, an urge to do these types of procedures. But the, the, the situation that you just mentioned with your, your client showed that that was a, a life-saving procedure there. Absolutely. What I'm seeing in my practice is that uh, colon polyps and colon cancer is hitting younger and younger people. We don't know the clear-cut answer as to why, but part of it could be genetics. But uh, I think food plays a much bigger role than we 
actually realize, you know, the standard American diet is low in fiber and high in ultra processed foods. We drink way too much soda and all of that takes a toll on your colon, uh, putting you at a high risk for uh, colon polyps and eventually colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a healthy diet, you know, moving throughout the day, not not maintaining a very sedentary lifestyle. These are all big high level things that seem to be across the board beneficial for everybody. Absolutely. Yes. That's great. Well, is there anything else that you feel passionate about for sharing for the listeners today? Or should we wrap up and learn about your favorite childhood memory with food? <laughs> Uh, there are three tips that I recommend to uh, my patients and general public. Uh, the number one would be avoiding any kinds of soda. When you're starting your wellness journey, that's the first thing that, that needs to go out of your pantry. You know, sodas, please avoid it. Number two, I would increase my fiber intake. At least 25 to 30 grams of fiber daily. Try to consume green leafy veggies, a lot of fruits, whole grains, all of those help you meet that fiber intake requirement. Three would be try to incorporate probiotic foods in your diet. Yogurt, kombucha, kimchi, kefir, try to incorporate those in your diet and your gut microbiome will be happy. And if your gut microbiome is happy, your whole body will be happy. That's excellent. That's great. And is there any childhood memory with food that you'd like to share that comes to mind? You know, growing up, I've always uh, loved mangoes. We get tons of amazing fruits in California, you know, apples, oranges, cherries, you name the fruit, we get it over here. The mangoes is something that I always crave. And unfortunately, I've not been able to find uh, good mangoes. You know, mangoes uh, bring back great memories uh, from childhood where uh, myself with my brother and the cousins, we would just uh, sit outside uh, in the sun and just eat plenty of mangoes. Uh, those are sweet and juicy. That was just a, a good childhood memory. Yum. Yum. And mangoes contain natural enzymes that can help with digestion as well. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Mangoes have natural digestive enzymes, you know, they're just great. Well, maybe you'll have to, I know that Florida has some really good mangoes. I have a friend of mine who recently posted her mango tree in her backyard. And I thought to myself, Oh my goodness, what a treat it would be to have a mango tree in my backyard where I could just go out and grab a fresh mango. Oh my goodness, that'll be a dream come true, right? Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Sethi, for joining us. Can you uh, tell the listeners where they can find you if they want to connect with you or follow you on social media? Sure, you can find me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is uh, Sethi. D-O-C-T-O-R dot S-E-T-H-I. And I look forward to connecting with you all uh, on Instagram. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Sethi. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all of your knowledge. You're welcome, Erin. I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you're interested in working one-on-one with one of our dietitians, you can go to nutritionrewired.com where you can also find functional lab testing that you can order and do at the comfort of your own home or just printing out a lab slip and going to a local Quest Labs. This has been a great addition to our practice. We've been doing it for several years and it really allows us to personalize 
the service that the clients get where they learn more about their hormones, their digestive health with stool testing, and their blood work to look at things like cardiovascular health, inflammation, and so much more. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.